Hi, we are listening to uh, Last Man Standing podcast. If you're wondering what you're what you're watching, it's okay. But if you're wondering if you ever get uh, quality analysis of sports and other kind of sports related or non-sports related kind of stuff, well, then you're probably well, uh, asking the wrong questions because you're guaranteed in this podcast weekly and uh, about in about an hour uh, top-notch analysis of sports across Major League Baseball, NFL. Uh, American sports, uh, also the the mechanics of those sports like the business or or TV ratings, uh, as well as other kind of sports like like snooker or Formula One or NASCAR. Uh, your quality, your guaranteed top quality um, analysis on all those topics. Uh, every every week of in about an hour of podcast here on on uh, on YouTube by me. Taylor Tenov, aka uh, Taylor Gaming. Right now, we're we are directing you to this week's edition of Last Man Standing Podcast. Welcome to a beautiful Sunday afternoon in uh, what's the third? That is the third our third episode of Last Man Standing Podcast with me, your host Taylor Tenov. And the the madness just continues. We got some pretty interesting content, some last minute changes. And Let's just go ahead and announce the lineup for tonight. We're going to start with um, AFL ownership, um, which is a pretty interesting topic. It's pretty different from what some of you might have seen from the uh, from North American professional sports, and you you see why it's so much different. We're going to have some wrestling this week in pro wrestling. We'll continue. We're going to have some esports. Um, Esports and television analysis, let's just call that. Um, and well, the last minute changes were um, the Yannick and Gakway trade, which uh, happened earlier today, and Gakway to a second and fifth rounders to uh, the Vikings. How is that going to change up the the, late, the landscape in the NFC and the division? Perhaps for the, for the Jacksonville Jaguars, a lot of, a lot of uh, ramifications out of that trade, which was definitely not the maximum that the the Jaguars could uh, could have uh, could have had for uh, yeah Gakwe because his value was so high and still provides dividends to whoever gets him. But the fact that he his value was so high, they can they could have got something more from him. And we're gonna finish off with wide receiver evaluation, the the insufficient market. At all positions, pretty much in the NFL, when evaluating when evaluating both draftees and players on the professional level, it's pretty pretty different. Okay, let's just say the valuations, the way people evaluate the receivers, often does not match the reality. You can call them biases, you can call them whatever they want. It's it's mainly market. Uh, inefficiency. That's what it's called. That's what Moneyball called it, I believe. Um, so, pretty stacked show tonight in our third uh, third edition of the Last Mistake Podcast. So, let's just uh, get to the show. Well, first topic tonight will be something that we haven't touched on. Probably a, a field of sports or something sports related, please, that we haven't touched on yet in our in our previous two editions of the podcast. Uh, so you might have think that in the 21st century where 
the free market free market economy the market economy has shown so much so many so many dividends and uh, made for so great of um, wealth and uh, quality of life you'll think that everyone would figure out that privatization privatization in pretty much every any field is is the way to go and especially in a country like Australia which has thrived in a enormous way since the 90s because of the free market because of capitalism you know stats have shown that they have thrived a lot of the, you know, think that people within sports would take the same approach well if you thought that you would, you would probably be wrong and well you you'd be wrong mostly with the Australian Football League because the National Rugby League has really uh, stepped towards uh, its economic liberalization um, and maybe one in particular has shown enormous dividends but probably all the teams that are private loans are, are, are financially and performance wise are, are have seen a great um great thriving so pretty much um okay dfl has um all but two teams are operated from the headquarters of the australian football league in melbourne i believe um all but two and those teams who are operated from their headquarters they're not privately owned, they are, I suppose that you can say that they're owned by the league, uh, XFL style, but not really XFL style because um, they are pretty much, they are funded by memberships, you know, you buy memberships, which is some some people who didn't know Australian football thought this is like a season ticket, but it's not a season ticket, it's like, uh, I wouldn't say that it's like you buy a stake in the club, but you funded it. You voluntarily funded it because you're a fan or something, which is not a great um, business plan at all. I'd say that the NFL has mainly thrived because, like, for, for the same reasons that the the NFL probably thrived, and we've seen that a lot. When the AFL moved towards um, becoming the, the big brand powerhouse of a brand that it is now um, steps that it took they took those steps in the 90s you know you, you know the, the years before probably what 100 years for hundreds before that they were called the Victorian Football League and then they become the Australian Football League and they um, most of its uh, league managed uh, business plan they, they took the they followed the, lead, the the steps of the NFL, and they you can see the the the, the fruits uh, the fruit of the of their great um, development. But when talking about individually with every league, things are are very very different. And uh, let's just throw it out: AFL uh, flourished for the same reason that the NFL flourished. Um, Uh, probably back in the 40s when uh, they actually 
were pretty strong on the newly uh, on the uh, what was now a new powerhouse of of television. They, they knew the television landscape. And they uh, were pretty quick to uh, to get a television to secure a television contract. As you may know, the first NFL game broadcasted was back in the 30s, and that's what that's when the NFL got a contract with uh, CBS. And that contract that the, the broadcast uh, history of the of CBS broadcasting the AFL and ultimately NFC when the two leagues merged in in uh, 1969. That contract ultimately spanned over 60 years before um, before CBS lost the rights to Fox for the NFC and then ultimately uh, CBS got the rights for the AFC and. The Sunday night games were uh, the, the the new package of Sunday night games was uh, uh, was shared between ESPN and Turner Network Broadcast Network Television. You know, it had the Monday night games, which were still on ABC. So NBC was the one who was empty-handed, and then uh, many executives of the National Broadcasting Company have said that. That was a that was those were really tough times. Those times between the early nineteen nineties and two thousand five, when they were a, finally able to acquire the the broadcast contract for the Sunday for Sunday night for. Um, you now the 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 AFL before the merger before Super Bowl was obviously obviously had a contract with ABC, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, but NFL was pretty strong, and AFL did the same and. Mostly, uh, uh, mostly, uh, its great development has come from that, from from pretty good television rights money and probably yeah, advertising money because those are the two set, the two, the two, uh, two main things. Although, although their their attendances are are pretty good, um, that has. Pretty, it's 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 pretty bad uh, business uh, structure when it comes to the clubs themselves and to the way they uh, they market themselves and to the way they work because it's not definitely not the the right um, environment for if you want your leagues to be profit if you want your teams to be profitable because on many different occasions and that starts with the first occasion of a team trying to be uh, prioritized, and every time another uh, another team has had um, problems, the league has mandated teams to start uh, funding pretty much the future to start helping this team, which is like the the, the, the taxing bullshit you know in, in in real life outside of sports. It's the same. It's the same thing. And, and not many people would wanna would wanna do that. And if if clubs know that they're gonna be saved if they work if they don't work well, they're ultimately not gonna work well because you're you're gonna save them you're gonna save their ass um, ultimately in the end eventually whatever the fuck. And just to be precise, 1985 
the league, which was still known as the VFL, the Victorian Football League. Then so the Sydney Swans, which was the first, uh, which was the first example of private ownership to George to Geoffrey Edelstein for six point three million. Then he he and him and his company Powerplay suffered uh, problems. Uh, then the next year, uh, the, the league was. Um, the league, the league, bought the team back, bought the majority of the of the shares back, and then they, uh, and I'm 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 currently searching for this, but uh, they pretty much get teams to to save the, the Sydney Swans from uh, from bankruptcy or whatever, because uh, because they were. Pretty bad financially, but still, that's a set that 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 has been a trend. And if teams know that they're going to be saved ultimately by whether that's the state, whether that's the league, it ain't gonna work out well for if you want those teams to be profitable. They're not gonna work well. It's the same thing when it comes to um. It's the same thing when it comes to things happening in politics or whatever. Recently, in Minnesota, uh, not Minnesota, in Minneapolis, city of Minneapolis, pretty much uh, decided to give people who don't work to give them money. And guess what? According to an interview by John Stosso, those people have no uh, no intention on working whatsoever. It's the same with AFL clubs. If they don't work well and you still have, you still save their asses, they don't. They won't have any kind of uh, any kind of intention to work well anytime soon. That's pretty much the worst of it. And the other bad thing is that you cannot stand out if you're if you're a club. You cannot be the best you want. It's, it's pretty similar to yeah. Okay, I'm trying to search for the, the, the exact amount that they had to. Um, but I don't think you can find it. Mm. They uh, here in an article by uh, an article in what's what's that called? Com the Canberra Times from 1992, October 13th, Tuesday. And, uh, it ha it says that they were. Reportedly, at the time, uh, rumors of the Swans moving to Sydney because of the their, their financial problems. Uh, and I thought when I when I when I checked it that they had then uh, had them you know uh, save money or. You know, make them give money for um, for the swans. Never mind. I I think I, I saw that. I'm I'm sure I saw that somewhere. Um, then again, it had we had some it had multiple uh, attempts to do for that in the next uh, thirty years. Most of which were not 
most of which were actually not really private because private means doing business and you know in, in, the, in that sense of the word the things I'm gonna tell you in a while <laughs> this league uh, centralized uh, model is more close to private ownership because it's actually not funded by, by the state it's not good everything that's the decentralized works better than the centralized things and and the, the less centralized something is the better it will work because it relies on individualism and it relies on competition and it relies on competition and that's the problem with the AFL teams don't have uh, financial competition don't compete financially don't compete on the field but yeah um, ah, yeah, there it is. Um, that, that was a couple of years later. That was a couple of years later. I apologize. The Swans were in dire trouble by 992, and the AFL effectively bailed them out by refunding uh, 1.9 million of the license fee and redirecting it into the club. So, yeah, they, they bailed them out pretty much. Um, I don't want to do that many that much of an analogy comparing it to thing, to things in business but that really is the same thing if you're beta out the 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 management the production wouldn't be good uh, and you know the, the things in real life are, pretty, are a little bit different because you know you're given public money which is perhaps uh, legalized crime, or I think it should be viewed as such. As such. But the same thing here. If you're doing business, you, I wouldn't want my league to. I would want teams to be privately owned. I don't. I don't want them to be owned by the league. You you are doing that, and leagues usually do that. And even even the Australian Baseball League, which which was initially funded, forty uh, percent of of it, I think at least was funded by with government money because at the time uh, I think the Labour Party was had a majority in the parliament or whatever it's called in Australia. So you know those left wingers like giving away public money. So it, the Australian Baseball League was sixty percent of it or something like that was funded by by the government. And the forty percent of it was funded by the by Major League Baseball because it's in part it's uh, minor league. It's I mean at least double A and single A players play there. You know there have been plethora of now popular players, now popular and top players who played there. Ron Cunha Jr. being the, the 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 most prominent probably. He's one of the best lead of hitters in the league. But also Louis Thorpe and others, of course. Um, Yeah, but, but even they were, uh, even they were um, smart enough to know that in the beginning the the, the teams should um, the teams should be owned by the league because you can uh, you can establish sustainability of the league that way. Uh, but but in short term, you know they they sold. Most of them, I think, we sold the 
I think we saw the Melbourne team, which what what was it called? The Melbourne team. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all, actually. Well, I don't know what I'm I'm focusing on that. They sold him to the Melbourne Demons or the North Melbourne Kangaroos or something like that. Um, which is a which is kind of a dumb acquisition um, if you're the Demons because the Demons don't have that many members. They're kind of um, no. It was the Adelaide Bite. The Adelaide They were they were sold to the uh, Adelaide Crows of the AFL and then they became the Giants. Yeah, that that was it. That was it. Okay. Okay, that was it. I'm sorry. Uh, they ultimately sold the other teams to to different uh, owners, and they are pretty pretty close to 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 private ownership. And and I think now is the proper time to give the examples of of the NRL of the National Rugby League. So they were kind of the same thing up until. Um, up until 1988, all the teams, and it was actually the only league at that time was New South Wales Rugby League. Um, in the in, in the past, those two sports, the one was mainly consisted in Victoria. You know, most of the teams were in Melbourne or near Melbourne, and say the rugby rugby league was in New South Wales, so it was called New South Wales. The Canberra the Canberra Raiders. Raiders were were one of the teams that is that still uh, exists to this day. So currently they have uh, three, six, ten, ten teams which are privately owned. The most the most um, most avid example of which is the South Sydney Rabbitohs, which I uh, mentioned the last time, which were which are seventy five percent owned by a consortium future, uh, featuring actor Russell Crowe. And they have uh, pretty much they, they have gotten back to being a top team during that span, and other things like the, the Canberra Raiders, the Mali Sea, the Mali Sea Eagles, the Melbourne Storm, Gold Coast Titans, Brisbane Broncos are six seven percent owned by News Limited. They're hundred percent um, privately owned. Uh, the New Zealand Warriors are hundred percent privately owned. Although I'm uh, knowing New Zealand, I'm kind of uh, surprised that there is still the private ownership is still uh, legal there because the people who are currently in charge there don't like the, the, these kind of things. They don't like business. They don't like the only thing they like is throwing um, taxpayers' money against the way. Okay, that's that's not uh, that's not important here. The St. George Royal Eagles. They are 50% owned by Wing Corporation. The other is by the League Club, which is the members, which is pretty, which which is kind of pretty good because you get the membership capital and you get the private, the, you get the corporate, the corporation capital, and it makes for pretty pretty wealthy investment. And the other team is the West Tigers. So other teams, other other uh, leagues. Although they aren't as high, they aren't as high in the television landscape and in ratings and in advertising revenue, and aren't really as big on uh, attendance uh, and ticket sales. In fact, um, they, they've gotten that slightly uh, 
more correct, slightly more correct than the AFL, but still, it's as a league you're still able to grow, and that stands for most teams. Now the the following two teams are in the pit of misery, pretty much. I'm talking about the two teams from Western Australia, the West Coast Eels and the Fremantle Dockers, because they're not owned by the league, and they are. Um, oh, well, the capital there. The, the the money they have mainly um pretty much they are, they are the money that comes to the league is pretty much like the other leagues they are just the the, the their supervisor again because it's no you know, owner just screws them up so what's their story the eagles and the Fremantle Dockers Fremantle has always been like that. The Eagles have been like that since uh, since the, the early 90s. Since the, no, not the early 90s. Since 1989. That's right. The Eagles were initially privately owned by Indian Pacific Limited, which initially raised a capital of 12.3 million by investors. Uh, but it had some problems financially. And a Western Australia Football Commission, which is a governing body in Western Australia, which is funded by taxpayers' money, nothing less, decided to buy it. Not only did they decide to buy it, they later claimed that the license was not bought with tax with state funds. Which, all right, I guess it's true, but let me let me just show you their model. Not uh, this is taken from. Uh, inquiring to the use of state funding by Western Australia Football Commission, submission from the Western Australia Football Commission from July 31st, 2020. So this is pretty new. This is almost exactly a month old. So their model, their model, which they called funding, uh, football funding football, which sounds pretty dumb to begin with, calls um, that pretty much the teams, the the, um, the revenue of the teams is pretty much um, shared across other means of a bit of it's not really business. Shared across other means of uh, operations. Shared across other operations uh, because they fund community football. This, this is that what. That's what the inquiry says. They also used their money for rental fee, but the stadium revenue doesn't go for uh, doesn't go into the teams. That's uh, that, that's what it says. Net football stadium revenue goes into. Let's see what that says. The it's not. Uh, I just I just cannot read it because it's too. Uh, Okay, they go to the. Um, they mostly go to the. Um, to the venue governing body, which owns the stadium, and the other part go. The other portion of the money, I guess, it's it's percentage of these go to the owner, which is the government, pretty much of Western Australia, and the other, which would primarily in any kind of other kind of sport, would go to the team. They go directly to the community football. So you cut 
you could what they get from um, you pretty much cut what they get from their stadium, from their attendance, which is one of the best in the league. And even this season, with West Virginia being open, we being so open um, uh, amidst of, of of the COVID pandemic, you pretty much cut that source of revenue, and you also cut most uh, most other means of revenue because they they don't just spend that; they spend uh, in addition to that. So pretty much, they, they they should they make profit, but their profit doesn't go to the team. So they they, they the West Coast Eagles made the the biggest profit, in fact, uh, out of all AFL teams back in 2019, I think, or 2018. West Coast Eagles and the Dockers. Um, in fact, back when the Eagles played at this stadium, which was called. Uh, Subiaco Oval. The stupid government did not allow them to put a corporate name right uh, to, to 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 sell to sell the name rights to the to a company to a corporate sponsorship. Uh, uh, instead, the Western Australia Football Commission made them give fifty to seventy percent. Um, give fifty to seventy percent of their profit the, for the for the stadium to be pretty much put together, you know, to to be cleaned and and uh, to be and to be uh, built, things to be built, and and so on and so on. Pretty much those those teams. Are not able to uh, get the best of their to get to uh, exploit their full uh, financial potential, which which in the end they get, uh, gets even worse. Uh, the downfield product gets worse. Their sustainability gets worse. To fund what? To fund it's uh, commissions like that are they're pretty big and they like every. Like probably every kind of government in in the big world, because there are some small countries, relatively small in terms of population, in terms of um, uh, capitalization, in terms of even not not in, not, not of, uh, gross domestic product. Because um, when you have good business going on, even if you have small population, your gross domestic product, and especially Per capita, is is pretty good, and uh, Luxembourg is a pretty good uh, example of that. And some of those, although they use too much public money, I wouldn't call that good business. The uh, the Arab, uh, the Arabic countries, but the the Western Football Commission, it's in charge of two AFL teams, and. Uh, add to those two football, uh, AF football teams. Both have AFLW teams. Uh, by the way, there some of the money which would remain after the, the two teams are deprived of their uh, ticket revenue and from their other revenue to to give both to what they call community football, which would be way better if it's if it was centralized and it's owned by 
another people who, are, who would make would make it into a business to, to a profitable business and everybody would it would be win-win situation for everybody uh, after they lose those money they have to lose another they lose more money because they are redistributed into the women's teams and most women's teams in the AFLW are pretty bloody uh, they're losing a lot of money this league is just a pit hole it's just like like you've cut it yourself and you're bleeding it that bleeding won't stop until you cut the cord of of of, of the AFLW and it's, it's so that league that league is so on the loss on the on the red that it had to be saved by the clubs clubs had to save the clubs which are who are not doing well even even state government money had to be involved which is pretty uh it's pretty good so the teams lose more money and they they they, they then do and that shows they're losing probably a lot of money from what are called community football apart from being deprived from the ticket revenue because like every like I said every form of government the Western Trade Football Commission uh, is in charge of too many things they're in charge of the Western Australia Football League which has nine teams they're in charge of competition and development there the their affiliates are the Metro Football League the the PFL the Western Australia, whatever the fuck that is, the WAWAFL, the AFL Masters, development for all of those. They have football development councils, regional district. And you you would think that this kind of structure, which is which contains too many things, would and it's in addition is um. Yeah, in addition, is given state funding. Uh, what what there will probably be pretty good chance that the state funding is not uh, used the way it should be. And you're pretty right. And you'll see how in just a few minutes. They also have the the game and development uh, and engagement state academies, which were, which were what, what the fuck they wasn't they what is, wasn't they the same thing that we read a couple of a couple of minutes ago. And those things combined to coaching, umpires, programs, schools, house kick, GNR football, which probably nobody does, multicultural and indigenous shit, which they're pretty much doing on, and female also. These, and those things figurate uh, are, are on this um, um, structural uh, design thing because of political correctness and because to to for them to you know uh, to make fraud with state money pretty much um, so that, so that is pretty bad for the teams themselves they're in no way they are they able to grow their they're able to grow their band but even, even if they grow their brand they're deprived of their ticket revenue and, and apart from that they're in no way able to grow because they have to uh, they have to um, take care and give money and fund so many things that they have no benefit, no benefit of, and would be a lot better if they were decentralized and privatized, not run by by state commissions with state money. So, what happens mostly when you when that powerful and uh, that 
power wanting uh, governing bodies which are government bodies pretty much uh, get state funding well there is an interesting article from this year June the 11th from the West Australian um, website news website Mick Murray to be grilled on West Australian Football Commission salary disgrace. Mick Murray is the sports minister of Western Australia, another pretty dumb title, another pretty dumb office to have, which on America, on the United States, because, most because of their constitution laws, uh, was the only country in the world to be smart enough, to be intelligent enough, to not do that, to uh, centralize the sport, to not have it run by bureaucracies, to have it run by businesses, by the business and individualism and individuals and individual and independent organizations running their money for their own profit pretty much grows everything. So what happened? Um, a, salary, a, sa a salary list leaked an email. It revealed WAFC, Women, Western Australia Football Commission, pays at least nine million of its uh, nine million to its uh, 134 staff with 23 employees getting at least uh, 100,000. Um, as revealed by the West Australian on Monday, one football identity was estimated to receive a thousand uh, Australian dollars an hour for a part-time position while, while four staff uh, members probably, I guess, uh, were paid more than 200,000 a year. The WAFC received 11.2 million Australian dollars from the state government last year as part of its annual funding agreement, but Murray was concerned that most of it appeared to be spent on staff uh, payments rather than football development. It's pretty obvious what happens here. 11.2 million of taxpayers' money were used in a criminal way, which just goes to show why well, taxes are legalized crime and in any sense of the world, anywhere, anywhere you slice it, Everywhere where there are public money involved, it's going to be fraud. And you can see that pretty people are pretty overpaid for not doing anything. A thousand dollars an hour for a part-time position. Well, probably nobody values him that way. And they're giving, him, they're giving him that because they want to throw taxpayers' money against the wind. They do the same. Um within their structure and in the meantime the, the teams who are actually in the AFL who have um, have potential to, to to grow financially to be profitable and to get to get the profit for themselves in order to really uh, expand their well okay, not expanding is not the right word because it's a team but to really um, grow their operations, to make their operations better, to grow the quality of operations there. Instead, as I said, deprive their, one of the revenue sources. Uh, uh, they are also obligated to fund things that they, get no, that they don't get the benefit of. They are also in the shadow of an organization. As both of those teams said when they, they reportedly wanted in 2012 the league to uh, buy back the licenses from the WAFC because they were in the shadow of the WAFC and they were pretty much in the shadow of an organization trying to take uh, trying to 
deprive them from the opportunity to grow and to become to, to grow the quality of their of their product of their operations and also of an, organ, of an organization which pretty much uh, throws taxpayers money against the wind. Mm. The things which are, which are probably lower in the hierarchy but working um, equally bad and if you're if you're a CEO of the West Coast or Fremantle, you just gotta ask yourself why why in the hell would I want to give so so much money to be deprived of all my profit and even some of my revenue to sponsor um, people not not doing their job well and um, not only to to, to, on the other hand, depriving and uh, contributing to what was going to be a tax raise because of, I mean, that's 11, uh, 11.3 million taxpayers' money, which are thrown against the wind, and the same goes for the, the, the Eagles and the Dockers. So that's pretty much what happens. Those two teams are, somehow, they're, they are more screwed up um, than the other um, members of the league, than the other teams of the league, because they're part in a criminal, criminal, that's what I would call it, as I would every government organization pretty much, which uh, every government organization which is more than a regulator or more than the three, more than the three following things, uh, police, army, and um, uh, Judicial or anything in the judicial branch, I'm talking about uh, courts and stuff. Anything else that's more than a regulator um, and it's a government organization, I'm gonna call criminal. And every time they prove me right, and the Australian Western Australian Football Commission proves me right in any sense of the word, and that is pretty bad for the Eagles and the Doctors because. They have the potential to be two of the most profitable teams in the league, but but in no way are they dead right now for the reasons I just said. So the conclusion would probably be that the, the the teams that have done the best probably, um, especially in the NRL, the teams that NRL showed that teams the teams which are which get privately owned, which get decentralized from the league, work well. The, 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 and the, the display is good both financially in terms of management, in terms of how the company, the team is run, and on the field because most of those NRL teams who are privately owned are, are some of the top teams. The Raiders are a top team, the Storm are the top team, are a top team the Seagulls are a top team, the Tigers are a top team, and the Eagles and the Dockers are also top teams, but uh, oh boy, oh boy, do they have a lot higher of a potential and even they are saying that they are they are pretty screwed up by a um, by being forced to pay for things they're not getting the benefit of instead of growing and focusing on particular operations and doing those operations well uh, involving their profit in it involving investing reinvesting it in the company and also by knowing that you're going to get profit, you're going to, the, the work is going to be done better. And this Western Australia Football Commission is doing exactly the opposite with 
um, with the with the Eagles and the Dockers. So that is the op that is pretty um, disappointing to see in a, in a league is in a so good of a league that is so so good presence on the business uh, and tele and in business television in Australia. Uh, those two te those two teams are definitely not in the uh, not, not not the leaders in, in that uh, pack. And as you, as you can see, they, they realized that they were probably gonna take some action about it. But for the time being, they're pretty screwed up. A rating rating segment, which is gonna be uh, more of a more of an analysis related to a particular thing rather than a roundup because it doesn't involve recent ratings, doesn't involve recent performances of leagues, especially the leagues that we recently talked about, that we previously talked about. It involves something pretty interesting. It involves esports, video games, mostly e-league, which we're gonna get into. But the the, the biggest competitor on tel on U.S. television when you're talking about esports. The E-League, which got on the scene back in, what, 2015, 2016, something. Uh, I got it here, it's 2016, okay, it was May 24, 2016, that's when the E-League was founded. And for the, for the past couple of, or it was actually since the beginning. Since the beginning they had a time slot on CBS, which was mainly CBS. Not CBS. I'm sorry. Uh, which was mainly around 10 p.m. or 11 a.m. Uh, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. at night. It's currently midnight. Actually, we're gonna get. That's because the NBA playoffs uh, every every Friday, and they seem, uh, which was a big shock for me. Something that uh, I had some. I had hard time understanding um, because there probably wouldn't be so many people standing up. Staying, staying uh, up late, um, let alone to watch esports. But TBS, both TBS and the League seemed pretty happy with with the time slot. I mean, the the League seemed happy with how they were performing in that time slot. TBS was reportedly happy to keep the League in that spot because they were because probably it's not the best thing to to put a product so young. So unpolished in prime time, especially on a weekday, you could probably exploit it during the uh, during the weekend. Especially considering the fact that TBS broadcasts nothing in prime time but uh, old comedies, old sitcoms. Uh, it's probably good to probably good thing to exploit it, but during the the weekdays in prime time, which is your primary primary source of revenue, no way are you taking that risk. Yet uh, both sides were happy, and why would that be? Well, it was pretty clear that both were drawing pretty well. So, a couple of things. 2007 was probably the first year when it was uh, it was better. Uh, it was better. Uh, it was invest highly in, in esports on television. We had uh, some kind of esports, although I will not consider the maiden um, I'm not sure it's professional esports, but you can prove me wrong. Nevertheless, 
Um, okay, there was on five separate networks in 2007. There were esports, the three of which were on broadcast television, in fact. Um, and the the winner of the year was the Madden Challenge, which drew um, six hundred seventy thousand uh, total viewers, uh, almost forty percent of which were in the eighteen thirty nine uh, demographic for a prime time uh, for a prime time edition of Madden NFL eighteen on broadcast television which I suppose it's not something incredibly big for for broadcast television but it, it is kind of good for uh, for something like uh, CW uh, because CW usually as you can see here uh, Friday August 24, 21st that was that was a couple of Fridays ago their 8 p.m. time slot drew 587,000 with a demographic rating uh, uh, in the 1849 demographic of 0.1. So I would guess that this might actually be that that might actually be one of their better programs of the year. So this is a, a terrific that, that, that probably was terrific. Those were terrific numbers even for CW. It would actually, you would actually expect that a, a broadcast network like that would, uh, would uh, invest in those because this is uh, over their uh, usual numbers. It was on a Wednesday, by the way. Uh, it's over the usual numbers, and it, it's uh, on a holiday. It was twenty-seven. It was twenty-seven of December, so it was between the. Uh, it was between um, Christmas and the New Year. That that's over the usual numbers. That's better than they usually do. Um, especially, you know, those Wednesdays usually have a lot of uh, December Wednesdays. They have NHL, they have NBA. So those those are definitely busy days. Not on broadcast television. Usually, in the, in, in the end of December, they usually don't broadcast much. They don't broadcast much of new stuff. But it's stacked when it comes to sports. Um, TBS was it was their first regular year of broadcasting on TBS. Um, much of the uh, mostly thanks to E League, which had the great uh, debut season uh, with CSGO, with Counter Strike Global Offensive. Um, it was a their first season pretty much had Counter Strike. I don't know that because I tried to do some commentary on commentary on those games, which of course I I recorded this. I'm not sure if, if YouTube demonetized it or something. Uh, I remember that they they had like four groups, but they had all the uh, they had from from the start they had they had all the top teams in CS:GO and that. My trend continued to the other games as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, this so that's probably the main contributor to to their success. They also that year, um, Street Fighter did pretty well. It had over 
thirty over three hundred thousand or three hundred thirty-five thousand uh, viewers. Um, CS:GO preview show did over three hundred thousand viewers. Um, Rocket League did over four hundred thousand viewers on a Friday night at ten p.m. I don't even know if it was live, but for ten p.m. Um, even on TBS, that's those are great numbers. Uh, the grand finals of Counter Strike did almost two hundred fifty thousand uh, viewers. Um, wrote to the international that's Dota two, of course. Uh, both did over one hundred fifty thousand. And TBS is probably the, in the best position with those because they're the only ones who, because of the league, they have. Um, in different, they have different sports that's also important, but uh, they have top performers and they have them regularly because Eevee has become a regular arrangement for all different, ki different kinds of sports, and that's continuing even today. They might not be investing on CSGO, and I don't watch them that much because of that, but they intend they really know the market and they've invested pretty well in the market with, with different leagues with not. Uh, with keeping it year to year, pretty much, uh, in order to uh, monitor what's going well. So that's why the new future pretty, pretty different, uh, very different kinds of games. But at the same time, they have top, they have all the top teams. In, they had, all, they've had all the top teams in every competition that they've had. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, their first, um, the first major they did, which was in Atlanta. Which was the Ely major? I I I think they did another one after that. Uh, no, here is the no here are the numbers actually. Yeah, they were yeah they were on a Sunday at 10 a.m. They drew 228,000. Uh, and I think those numbers were were so satisfying were so satisfying for a 10 a.m. on TBS that they. They actually had another major after that. If I'm not mistaken, they had, um, apart from having season four after that, which drew even better numbers. Uh, on a 10 p.m. at night, uh, it drew almost 20,000 uh, 20, more. And then the next year, in 2018, I think, the... Decided to hold another E League major, which was in Boston. Apart from that, we have um, Nintendo World Championships on Disney X, XD and Evo Super Smash Bros. Finals. Those are not too intriguing, but the Nintendo, the Nintendo shit drew to 240,000. Uh, and the Madden Ball on NFL Network um, drew 190,000. I'm not sure how how many of the top players, um, or if it isn't professional, but I know that the Madden NFL, even even in the United States, is not the most. It's not among the 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 prestige the, the prestigious uh, esports. It's people take it like they're watching somebody play Madden rather than. Somebody rather than they're watching a game, a match, 
a lot less people in the United States care about modern NFL competitors on a professional level level than they care about Counter Strike, Google Offensive, or Dota 2, or StarCraft, or whatever the hell that there is. There is uh, on the professional level, and people know that the teams and they are interested, and in, even in things like uh, trade rumors and transfer rumors, you know, the things that are pretty. Um, that are pretty uh, characteristic characteristic for uh, for the real sports for uh, team sports and stuff like that. So we have a couple. We have some 2018 ratings. This this right here is is also uh, this is June 2017. We might, might we might take a look at this as well. Um, the they had two. The, the Boston Major, I think, was not on TBS. And even if it is, I think it was not broadcast live rather than um, rather than on different episodes spanned across the year, or at least part of the year. But Raw to, to the Boston Major drew 214,000. Then um, the First episode drew 164,000. The Madden Club Championships on ESPN2 drew more. ESPN's arguably, uh, but that's only because ESPN's arguably ESPN2 even is arguably a more watched network than TBS, especially these days. It was on a Thursday. It was earlier than the 10 and 10:30 p.m. slots of the Road to Boston Major episodes because. The Madden Club Championships were at 9 p.m. And Madden is not really the uh, the the that that kind of esports uh, uh, game that will become a big uh, player on the sport, uh, big player competing with sports as an esport. But CS:GO and Dota 2 and stuff like that, and even League of Legends. Those were the real esports. Those were the real esports that people look on as if they were looking at sports. So the next graphic we have um, from June 2017, which was season one, I suppose, uh, of E League. Yeah, that was season. There is season one. There's season two. There's Street Fighter. Okay, the season one was pretty, pretty. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, th I think that, that that doesn't factor in the. Uh, uh, no, it's not. It's not actually 2017. It's uh, from the beginning until. June 2017. So the first season, it was CS:GO. It doesn't factor in, I think, the uh, the the live final or something like that. Uh, so these are all here are all uh, one-hour episodes on uh, on TBS at 10 p.m. So the the week one drew 255k. Week two drew stunning 386k. Then slight decrease, no slight decrease, but a, a big decrease. Decrease week three hundred fifty-three. 
but still the next the next couple of weeks until the final 276k 254k 265k 221k 226k and 295k and 201 for the last uh for for the day day two of week 10 and the all of those are uh are not bad for what uh tbs usually has in fact I'm, i cannot find uh I, I cannot find many uh better um many higher rated uh, TBS shows at 10 p.m. even today so um, this is this is like this is it's it's avidly they have something better than the, what they usually broadcast here so that is pretty good and the next the season two which was against CSGO decreased uh, not decreased increased even more they had um, their their first three episodes were all over 300k. The third episode, which was Group D, was 402k. The major was 228k. The finals of season two were 134k. Mm, and then uh, pretty similar numbers for Street Fighter, uh, with the finals going uh, for the, the the most watched finals of either of the three seasons of. The first year, the first uh, year and something, year and a half, uh, at 335k. You see, the majority of those, and probably what would be the the average um, viewership, the average number of viewers, is meets meets to 200k, probably about 250k, with a slight, not slight, but a significant increase after season one. Mm, you would probably say that the product is, is 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 starting to establish itself on the market and it's even starting to expand. Uh, and that trend might have continued with constant new content uh, in 2017. And constant, I'm talking about big content because there are majors in different uh, sports, different disciplines, and there were majors that were were big events in, in their sports. Uh, well, now that we've struck different times, there cannot be at least the majors are not not that major because they're not. Um, they cannot be attended. They don't have attendance. They're not in a big uh, arenas. They're online. But by the way, the first two seasons of seasons of E League. Which were in the Atlanta studio were all uh, they didn't have attendance. They had small they had small attendance, but they were all, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they weren't all, they weren't they even had attendance. But the fact was that the regular season was was offline. That's what he called it, and that's something pretty. Never mind. Um, these days. Um, there was new content coming up, coming out until August the 14th, where they started what they call E-League FIFA Ultimate Team 20 Champions Cup Stage 4. 
which they broadcast blockbuster matches beginning Friday, August the 14th at midnight. So those are midnight numbers. Bear that in mind. Before that, they had the 11 p.m. time slot. They had to move it to midnight for those uh, FIFA stuff uh, because of the NBA playoffs. So what did that, what did that lead to? Um, we're going to look at three different Fridays. First, we're looking at 24th of July. 24th of July, E-League was 103rd according to the top 150 list by Showbuzz Daily. And it drew 131 with an 0.05 rating, which was the 103rd best. And in fact, it uh, it draw better than TNT's primetime uh, program, the Arena, which drew 149,000 with 0.05 rating. And the TBS primetime show, it got to be somewhere on here, but I... Uh, it probably it, it probably drew uh, lower, but but the, the matter of fact is that those are some those are completely um, different events from the when E-League started when those were events that were recent that it was like you're watching. Uh, Matches were that were that were kind of recently. It was closer to watching live, live those events live than it was now. Those were pretty obviously um, replays, and they were also at 11 p.m. And they're drawing pretty much what they had in 2017 of new episodes. At, and those were even at an hour earlier. New episodes an hour earlier and then drawing the same numbers with replays an hour later. Even with live in at that live sports restarting and um, the fact that it drew a better it didn't draw a better rating but it yeah it, it drew a better rating than um, than NASCAR in the truck series in primetime on Fox Sports 1 at Kansas. Didn't draw more viewers, obviously. But we drew the same rating, I'm sorry. Uh, then, July 31st, E-League is 85th. It was one of the last, it was, it was the penultimate episode before the penultimate team series with the best matches launched uh, on August 14th. It drew 0.07 rating with 101,000 um, viewers. That is also pretty good. You can see on that 2017-2018-2016-2017 list, you see it outdraws two episodes from season one and two episodes from season two. Uh, and four episodes from season three. So it kind of has better numbers than when new com new content was coming out. Then they were pumping new content. And they're now having the same numbers um, an hour later. So what happened when um, FIFA Ultimate Team launched? And they had to move an hour later 
well, they still draw they still draw more numbers than uh, tw than 20 days earlier when on August 21st the FIFA Ultimate Team Episode 2 um, on TBS at midnight draw a 0 0.06 rating with 148,000 viewers again it draw the same rating um, in terms of the zero point, uh, in terms of the uh, the key demo as the trucks uh, of the truck series of NASCAR, um, it drove better than the Sports Center, which was going on at that time. Drove also drove better than the earlier uh, Sports Center. Not that they, not, not that people watch uh, Sports Center as as fanatically as they used to. It outdraws first things first that morning show on Fox Sports. It outdraws NASCAR 500 qualifying, which was an hour, which was in the morning. Um, it also outdraws uh, NFL Live. It also outdraws NFL Live. Overall, it finishes 102nd out of 150 shows on the Showbuzz Daily. Um, uh, list. And for a midnight show, with that, that is probably been pretty good for a midnight TBS show, and TBS is nowhere near as watched as it used to be. You can see that those numbers have arguably uh, stayed the same or even increased, although they're broadcasting an hour later. Uh, now, uh, with the NBA playoffs going, they're broadcasting two hours later into midnight, which is yeah, midnight, um, and they're outdrawing their, they're outdrawing some of the other, even earlier, um, even with earlier time slots programs. As you see, one of those outdraw the 8, 8, 8 p.m. Um, the 8 p.m. program on TNT. It drew the same rating. Yeah, it almost outdraw it in terms of viewers. With, with, three hour, with, be, with being three hours later, I, I guess that would be a win when you compare them. Yeah, by the way, the the, the, the 24th of July um, E-League replay of something that I don't know where... I don't know where what they broadcasted, I'm going to be honest. But it drew more viewers than the 5 p.m. Thunder Celtics game on NBA TV. That has something to do with the network, but it also has something to do with. But it also is at 11 p.m. and the other way is as it is at 5 p.m. That just goes to show how um, how impressive those ratings are. And that imagine when it comes time for for the next television contract, or if they are if if they are ties with Turner and with. AT&T are gonna get uh, bigger at least when they get some prime time slots and they have some live coverage. Imagine the ratings then. I would be pretty, I'd be pretty excited for for those numbers because those would be some great numbers, judging by what is currently going on. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Next time, make, uh, don't forget to join us next uh, Sunday as well. At uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 p.m. Bulgarian Time, or Eastern European Time, it doesn't matter. Um, and 
it, it as always is gonna be another uh, pretty interesting show. Uh, we're gonna have a recap of MLB trade deadline, a, a market-like approach to did teams get what they needed, and if they got it, was the cost too much, and will it be worth at the end of the day? Is it gonna hurt them? It's always, it's arguably the best time of the year that, that holds stove, whether it's in the winter, whether it's the summer trade deadline, it's always awesome. And AFL is rapidly approaching. We're gonna have some top matchups between between players um, in in week one of the of the, the first slate of games, and we're also gonna have some fantasy football rankings. And of course, as always, wrestling. We're gonna recap all of, all that happened um, in uh, uh, across the week. So that'll be our next episode, the fourth episode of Last Man Standing podcast with me, Taylor Senov. Don't forget to join us uh, next Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Uh, Bulgarian time, September the sixth, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that yeah, yeah, that's gonna be September sixth. Don't forget to join us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, or whatever you're listening to this to. And now we're living with, and now I'm leaving you with the rest of the show. Okay, okay, we're back on Last Man Standing podcast with uh, our first NFL segment, I think, in maybe two weeks, maybe more. It depends on where, when the first show was, obviously. Um, now we're back in the biz with um, now after we in the first episode we discussed the Jamal Adams trade from Jets to Seahawks. Now just an hour, hours ago before hours ago before hours before we're recording this, uh, a, another huge trade happening, which is gonna shake the NFL landscape without any doubt um, and you have to, we gotta we gotta say that this was a lot more one-sided than Jamal Adams trade um, so according to ESPN's Adam Schefter in an article that I'm reading by Michael Becker on NFL.com Yannick Ngakwe has been acquired by the Minnesota Vikings in exchange um, in exchange for 2020, 2021 second round pick and a conditional fifth round pick in 2021. Sources, uh, sources, um, initial sources, and ESPN, NFL Network's Tom Palisero and Adam Schefter from ESPN. And this is, first thing that comes to mind is that the price for Ngakwey is, is no way is it second and fifth. I mean, consider this. Yannick Ngakwe has played four seasons in the NFL. He's had eight sacks in each of the, those four seasons. He had 12 in 2017 when he was pro bowler. He had nine, nine and a half in, 2000, in, in 2018. So he's had 37, uh, 37 and a half sacks over four seasons. His production is Definitely impressive. Mm. He also had six fourth, six first promos in 2017, and he, he, by far, he has one of the one of the best amount of amount of sacks throughout the last four seasons. I, I think there's no doubt about it. Um, apart from that, uh, in addition to those stats, obviously. Uh, Dictating what 
what should have been a high price tag for Ngakwe. Uh, also, the demand for him was huge. He was rumored would the, he was rumored to have to have interest from the Vikings, from the Jets, from the Ravens, even from the Cowboys. There were a lot of teams were in on Ngakwe. A lot more teams were in on Ngakwe than they were on Clowney, because the short-term uh, cap hit on Ngakwe is lower than on Clowney because Clowney wants 18 million per year. And if you give him that, not only will you have problems uh, due to the uh, uh, due to a what looks now as what seems to be now uh, an inevitable decrease in the salary cap, you also gonna have you also you're gonna have problems uh, adding talent to your to your team. Either way, even if they even if there wasn't even if there was a slight increase in the salary cap, you will still have problems um, adding talent to your team by signing Clowney to 20 plus or even 20 million a year. Um, Ngakwe is, is uh, that's his last year, that's the last year on, on his contract, so uh, at least you can use him on his. Uh, no, that he's on a franchise. Like he's on a franchise. Um, at least you can use him on um, on the franchise on the franchise tag uh, salary for, for for this one year, and even next year he won't be as expensive as Clowney. Um, that drove a huge demand. A huge a stack of candidates and this should have driven in a big prize when it comes to trade demands from the Jacksonville Jaguars and from what they what they got a second round pick and a fifth round pick is is just I mean the minimum was a first rounder in my opinion for him you should have you should have got a first rounder especially with who the Jaguars now have remaining. Uh, now that this dictates the market value, it doesn't in any way. No, no way does it. Uh, but it dictates what the Jacksonville Jaguars would eventually demand from every team. You can you can always want more when you need more. Uh, now, now they are in a four-three defense. They are left with jo Josh Allen, who was a draftee last year. And the other pretty, the only other uh, eye eye popping, eye catching name is Calavian Chasen, who was drafted out of LSU this year. So the one is a second year player who had substantial success last year, and the other is a rookie out of LSU, who you can in no way uh, count on. Josh Allen had ten and a half sacks. He's pretty good. But he's He's one defensive end on a pass rush that seems to have no uh, no spark because it's just Josh Allen. And numbers for sport that I, I'd rather put um, four eight eight sack uh, guys rather than 
Um, I have Josh Allen, then I have Taylor Brown, who had two sacks last year, and 11 solo tackles and one forced fumble. Then I have Avery Jones, who is in his eighth season, and his latest uh, effort was 15 solo tackles. He was under 150 in the, in the rankings, and he had two sacks. So 13 and a half sacks from those three combined, and 10 and a half from Josh Allen. They are, they are left with nothing. Even if they try some other um, blitzes, involve Miles Jack, involve I don't I don't think C.G. Henderson or any of the safeties could be used in a uh, in blitzes in safety or corner blitzes. So they're virtually left with nothing, which should have driven them to get their to get his value up at least. Uh, 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 at least by a small bit so that they can get something that they can use and fifth round pick virtually has no value only 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 that many players who are drafted in the fifth round become anything in the NFL not everyone's Tom Brady not everyone Dak Prescott is in the fourth round and even he's in the minority of the guys who succeed as a fourth rounder second round pick is in most cases not a not a game changer. The Jets draft pick from last year was from a division two or division three school. I don't think he I, I don't think he's a starter anymore. And the year before that I think was was Bless Bless Austin and even he is still developing. For a guy like uh Ngakwe, We've only got four seasons off and got four tremendous seasons. He's racked up over 37 and a half sacks. And the price was at least a first round pick. Two first rounders would probably been too much. But a player and a first round pick would have been more than enough. Now, instead, you virtually have one pick, one asset that has no value, another asset that has very little value. I mean, the only guy that you can draft, I mean, there isn't a guy that you can draft and he can, within three years he can become a young Ngakwe type, he can get you a young Ngakwe type of production, he won't come in the second round. The chances are that he's not going to come in the second round. The chances are the only chance of getting this kind of player with that kind of production, I'm talking about numbers, I'm talking about solely about numbers. Nobody should mention individual, nobody should mention games, nobody should na mention names. We're all talking about stars, that was the stupidest thing ever. But the only guy who can get you a similar production within three years, he can become a guy who can have eight sacks or more on a uh, regular basis, he's going to come in the first round, he's not he's going to come in the second round. And before the draft, you were probably, uh, if you trade Ngakwe, you are not bound to use that on the on the pass rush. But now looking at it, the, their worst component by far right now in their squad. Uh, okay, they can they can take some improvements when it comes to the. Uh, their offensive line, 
they can use a receiver too. But to be fair, now the worst. Um, okay, depending on Kalevin Chason, they might he might provide a spark. But they have the most holes by far. They have in their pass rush, and the other thing is the offensive line probably. But the pass rush is among their, their worst components. Now, even if the second, uh, even if the second round pick was a high, uh, was a valued asset, they need those new investment investments. They need to use them on the pass rush. And with the second rounder, no way are they going to get. Um, no way are they gonna be on profit at the end of the day. In fact, first round pick in no way he can get a Yannick Ngakwe um, type of production. Okay, Yannick Ngakwe was, was actually drafted in the third round. And the chances are that third rounder is not gonna be the chances are that most uh, third round defensive heads are not gonna be Yannick Ngakwe. He his value right now is a lot big lot higher than a guy being in the third round because he's actually played well on the professional level. Most guys drafted in the third round are not going to be that. They're simply not going to be that. The, the, the fifth round pick we're just not going to discuss. It's just not worth it. And I'm seeing an article from the Viking Age for bomb, bombshell trades the Vikings could make. Well, that was one of them. This article is before. It's not today. It was actually written yesterday. But it seems like they actually kind of predicted it. That, that is a bombshell trade for the, for the Vikings. They, they, they virtually uh, traded nothing for Yankin Gakwe. Yankin Gakwe in his, what, near 15 million to, uh, 2020 salary. The franchise tax salary, of course, I'm talking about. But, but, but they didn't have to trade anything. They had no... Uh, low long term, uh, they they have not given up anything that's gonna hurt them in the long term. Second round pick, most chances are that even if this pick somehow ends up being something interesting, it's not a missed opportunity for you. Most second round picks are not Yankee Gakwe top players, let alone fifth for in fifth round. So how does that to finish that up? How does that actually impact the Vikings' uh, pass rush? Much needed, uh, a much needed um, improvement upgrade after Everson Griffin um, was let go. He signed with the Cowboys. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and to be honest, Yankee Gak was 25. Uh, compared to a 32-plus-year-old Everson Griffin, Yankee Gakwe is more likely to hit to have his prime in front of him, and that would especially good for Vikings if they're able to re-sign him uh, for more than for, for just beyond for not just 2020 but beyond that. Uh, there is a higher uh, possibility that. This, his prime is in front of him, that his best seasons will be not those who are behind him, but those who are in front of him, then Arizona Griffin. Arizona Griffin's production is probably going to go down. He's had 
some tremendous season. Some of those were in recent years. He had a, he had a um, um, deeper sides. He's had three 10 plus sack seasons, one of which was 2017. He had 13, and his latest Pro Bowl season was last year. He had eight sacks. His highest since that 2017 season. He also had 12, 2014, and 10 and a half in 2015. But he is 32. And the possibility of, he, of his best years being behind him, in fact, I think that those four seasons in which he had, in three of which he had, Temple sacks in the other head. I'm pretty sure that's. I'm, I'm pretty confident that's what's going to end up his, as his best seasons. He's his 32. And. Yang Ngakwe's ceiling, um, when it comes to production, which is going to come from between now and the rest of his career, is a lot higher than Everson Griffin. So the Vikings virtually are able to improve upon their pass rush last season without giving it, giving up anything that's going to hurt them in the long term. As we said, second round pick is not as high of an asset as Yannick Ngaku is. Fifth round pick is virtually a zero as, uh, uh, an asset that has a zero value, that values has no value at all. So that is pretty good. To, to sum up, the Vikings are going to be pretty good. They're probably going to be pretty good because they. It's, it's, it's probably not an overreaction to say that they um, were able to to improve in the draft in free agency. They got Justin Jefferson, who was a tremendous receiver, who had great stats and had the big workload, a hundred plus catches to to just. To, to, to give credit uh, credibility to those stats, he's going to be one of the best uh, in that wide receiver uh, wide receiving class. Kirk Cousins, he's always good. Um, he's, he's always been a good uh, pocket passer. He's going to be as good as last season if his uh, offensive line is as good as last season. Um, Stefan Diggs' loss, probably not that good, but... Justin Jefferson might uh, surprise some people. Dalvin Cook, they should probably run the offense through him. And Alan Thiel and Justin Jefferson uh, being the 3 with Kirk Cousins, that probably be, it probably make them pretty efficient. And probably also give an easy start for Justin Jefferson to his career. The pass rush is going to be pretty good um, with Daniel Hunter, who became the fastest player with 50 sacks in NFL history. Um, last season, he has played uh, Hunter. He has played four seasons. Yeah, he's played four seasons. He has fifty-four and a half sacks. He's had fourteen and a half sacks in each of his last uh, two seasons. It just somehow is a huge surprise that he hasn't been voted into the first team all pro team into the first all pro team yeah um that way they added a a future promising left tackle in Ezra Cleveland for a draft in the second round or something like that 
Um, the linebacker, linebacking trio is pretty good. Eric Kendricks, Anthony Barr. Eric Kendricks is, is pretty good also. Uh, Anthony Harris, mm, the Harrison Speeder, uh, solid uh, safety uh, duo. Don't think I'm concerned about the line, the, the cornerbacking duo. But they, they added Jeff Gladney, so he would also be uh, due to probably make 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 good appearances if uh, if Holton Hill or Mike Hughes don't don't start off well. So these are the Vikings. They had a huge upgrade without giving in virtually anything. And the Jaguars, well, they missed an opportunity. They missed an opportunity to get first rounder because I don't know. Nobody can answer that. Why not get a first rounder out of Ngakwe? Why trade him for a second rounder? The demand for him was super high. Those are questions that will probably get answered, but not right now, as, as this usually happens. But with time, we'll probably probably some pretty spicy things about this trade will will come out and why why Yannick Ngakwe was traded was traded for a first rounder when obviously his value on the market was a lot higher. But until that comes out, the, the Jaguars will be the losers of this trade. And until Yang Gugger has a bad season, which he's still uh, yet to have. And it's pretty obvious who won the trade short term. The true winner of the trade we won't see until at least one year, but right now the Vikings, looking at the value of all the assets right now, Vikings by a, by a mile. Well, this week in wrestling, this will be a lot uh, shorter segment because this week wasn't really that eventful. This was not as eventful as last week, so this will not be another one-hour um, one-hour uh, segment. So yeah, five shows were pretty much. It was kind of the same story as last week, although. Shouldn't have been that way because there is um, there there are a total of four pay-per-views for all those uh, for for four of those shows probably, and the fifth show has pay-per-view in October, and the kind of the quality of the shows were were about the same and without one thing, but we'll get to it. Um, so as you remember, we're doing the leaderboard. We're doing a standings. Of, um, and I'm just grading all, all each of the five shows um, from one to ten. And then at the end of the year, we're doing a, an average per per week per show to show the highest average. As long as there aren't many canceled shows, which I'm pretty confident there won't be. Um, you know, wins the the award or something. So let's start with Raw. I'm giving a Raw like last week a four, because virtually, as I said, bad nothing, no upside wrestling wise. The the, the other the the only have good match was um, Bailey and Asuka. That was the only have good match. In the other matches, Shayna Baszler defeated Bailey by disqualification. Uh, Montez Ford defeated Danger Garza in three minutes. 
Back to the Wire, the Rats, qualified the iconic Sanzania video in three minutes. Fourth individual Keith Lee by disqualification. And then the main event, Myster the Mysterios and Murphy Rollins was in no contest. How can I grade that? Uh, how can I grade that positively? Everything, everything except Asuka and Sasha Banks for the long, the long asylum. That's the the rematch, of course. Um, the segment with um, with McIntyre and Orton was uh, was um, entertaining, but as I said, a wrestling show revolves around wrestling, and if the wrestling is bad, this provides very little upside. Good wrestling is valued more. The wrestling has value, bigger value. Doesn't matter if we're talking about um, good or bad wrestling, then a, then a segment, whether it's good or bad. And when the wrestling is bad, one good segment does not save the show in any way. Um, then I have SmackDown. Uh, SmackDown is six. Featured a good tag team match, the main event, I think. Um, a, I'd say a good... Um, well, actually, pretty good Intercontinental Championship match between Hardy and Nakamura. So the wrestling was marginally better than Raw, and had something that if they actually go forward seriously with this, this will be this will be pretty pretty different from what they've, they've been doing for the last couple of years. Because this actually looks brilliant to have Reigns with Paul Heyman. I hope it's just not some not nonsense, not senseless. No, okay. I, I hope it's not a senseless uh, he, uh, cliffhanger. It's really something that they were doing seriously. They will be really turning turning him heel. By 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 the way it look, it might be that way, but we've seen many many times that it wasn't always that way. Next up, we have. Dynamite at seven, which Dynamite still had a pretty good. I uh, I thought was a, an amazing uh, gauntlet match, a pretty good debate with between. What am I talking? Pretty good segment with MGF and uh, Moxley. Um, then again, uh, the main event was also good. It was a bit shorter for. Uh, for reason, speculation show that it was mostly uh, speculation speculators, mostly in the media, say that it was because of um, the Broly Lee segment, which, uh, which on the other hand, had uh, some things that were not featured on that were not featured on AW television, so the audience might not be aware of what things have happened backstage at uh, being the being the elite. So. They had to cut off the main event for that main event, which was would have been a lot better, um, but it was still kind of good. So I give a seven, or I give a seven, which is a lot, which is a decrease of a point and a half in, uh, compared to last week. And next week should be, I think, next week should be an increase because it was the go the go home show before all out. So it definitely has to be an increase. Uh, but I, I really like that the match is gonna be. They're, they're, they've been setting up. This is a lot better 
the stall line. This is the best stall line. Um, they're gonna have. They've been developing that stall line, but they're still gonna have uh, a pretty good wrestling. They're, pretty, they're still set up a pretty good match for the tag team titles. You can see pretty pretty much that they uh, that they take seriously those titles. Um, and FTR and Omega and Hagman will be amazing and now that now that storyline with Hagman being being uh, kicked off of, kicked out of the elite um, it's gonna be a playground for pretty good for pretty good piece of storytelling but at the same time it's probably gonna be an amazing um, amazing match um, and apart from that fact is uh, it's it's an amazing match to have on the car. It's pretty it's pretty gonna sell uh, some some uh, some buy some buys for for pay per view. Uh, Impact at seven and a half. Impact featured an amazing uh, main event for the Knockouts Championship. Yola Peraza, Jordan Grace, 30 minute Ironman match. I think they really did it the right way by having it uh, be a low scoring affair because a 30 minute match, I mean, if you have a. Always when you make a title match, pretty rarely do you make it less than 50 minute, 15 minutes. It's usually trying to have good competitors. They have good competitors. No way are they going less than 15 minutes. Especially nowadays when time is. Valued on the on the market when you're talking about uh, grading matches, value, uh, time is time of the match, length of the match is more valued than ever before. Nowhere to go in 50 minutes. And when I watch the Iron Man match that finishes four or three, it's just pretty unrealistic. And now it was zero zero until the 23rd minute or something like that. It, it finished up being two and one with being with dramatic finish with the last fall being three seconds before the end of regulation. And an amazing booking. Uh, the earlier matches, Myers and Moo, uh, Myers and um, Willie Mack was was pretty good. They had a lot of wrestling. Pretty much everything on this show is uh, they've also been they're also promoting a uh, an Eric Young and uh, Eddie Edwards match for the world title next week. So they've done another a terrific. On uh, the one hand, they're, they're doing a terrific job promoting uh, a match, promoting it the whole week in advance, which many would do, would just announce it midweek, especially now with the internet. They would just announce it midweek and they just announce Monday, the, the day before the show. Not doing that, they're they're promoting it a week in advance, which is some pretty good, um, pretty good strategy. Uh, if you remember, they promoted the five-way match. They promoted it immediately after Tessa was fired, which means that you, you don't need to be genius to do that. But if your organization is run well, okay, if the organization within the company is run well, that's what I'm trying to say, then this will indicate that you're doing your job well. So promoting uh, 
um, so, some people might not get it that cloning is a huge part because you might be doing a good job, you might be booking the matches well, you might be pushing the right guys, you might be pushing the right side of wrestling, you're not actually having people be aware of what you're of, of an event a lot in advance, not be aware of what they'll be watching if you don't spark their interest. Um, you're not going to put butts in the seat, and then you're going to have you're going to make a misinterpretation of why you're going to probably uh, going to probably think that you're not pushing the right people, and then you're going to you're going to misinterpret and you're going to uh, crip stomp even the the good the good things you're doing, and this misinterpretation has caused a lot of people have her, her, uh, headaches. You see, the worst companies in terms of financials are also worse financially because they were mostly because they weren't promoting the shows pretty well. Uh, because they weren't promoting the shows in advance. Because WCW 99 and 2000, no matter how bad it was, how bad the display it was, if they had they had another uh, they had enough marquee stars to just be able to uh, announce eight matches four weeks in advance, they would say they would probably sell twice as many tickets. They'll probably sell twice as many uh, pay-per-view buys. And they'll be much better off. And so that is why it's beyond vital. NXT, I'm giving him giving him the biggest uh, grade eight. Because it had by it had tons of wrestling, had three tremendous matches, had by far the best wrestling overall. Um, comparing it to to either of the other four shows, um, it set up a tremendous again week in advance. Great promoting, uh, set up a week in advance. A great fatal four-way match for the NXT title. And again, you know you don't have to be a genius, but Pretty easily, uh, the main roster on WWE could have just uh, could have just announced on a Sunday before the Raw that the title that the world title will be defended. And because it wasn't promoted, you'd have to at the end of the day you you see that people were not going to be watching it. In order to not have a bad title change that nobody's going to see, you have to just make the match short, not have any kind of not having any kind of interesting thing, and it will be a bad match, which is not going to contribute well to your card. And ultimately, it will make for bad ratings, because NXT knows that from a couple of weeks ago that a one time slot that performs extremely bad is um, is going to hold your whole rating of the show down, because you know. People, uh, advertisers, they value, they might value a particular demographic, but if I, the number for the whole show, they're, they're not going to look at quarters. They're not just, you know, they sell their ads for the whole show. They're not just going to look for quarters. And not just, or not just, not, it's not just that a random title match would not be watched but then if something that's extremely ugly, I'm talking about a result, I'm talking about a, a ugly title change, or even a not a, an unclean finish, then those things happen, it, it will piss people off, 
it will it will slow the momentum down and will make for probably not just one but two holes when you're talking about the quarter ratings. NXT doesn't have NXT didn't have that. NXT didn't have that tonight. Three tremendous matches spanned across the whole uh the whole uh, no, that's tonight and Wednesday I'm talking about Wednesday. Uh, uh three matches spanned across the whole two hours. Not the whole two hours they weren't you know they were you get what I'm saying. Uh, the only bad thing was probably don't think I didn't like was having Rhea Ripley lose, but still tremendous wrestling and nothing to really curb the good work they're doing with the match in terms of ratings. And again, the interest will be there next week because they're promoting in a week in advance a an amazing main event. It's gonna be an hour, so it's gonna take the whole hour. Which means people are probably gonna tune for the for the whole show, uh, and because that match is so advertised, to have it will have a sparked momentum over the whole second hour, which pretty much means that um, by promoting by by just announcing it a week in advance, you uh, guarantee yourselves a better second hour, and by that you guarantee yourself you have a better first hour. Because it probably impact your whole show because people were tuning for the whole show. Next, it was it doesn't necessarily guarantee them uh, high ratings, even when they're on a post, even when they're a post. I've said that many times, and I've said the I've, I've said the reasoning behind that, in my opinion. Mm. But. They, they really had some great wrestling. They, they really prioritized wrestling as has AEW, as has Impact. And they, they, they are in a position within being, uh, by being a subsidiary in WWE, they're in a position where they can grow, they cannot grow much, but their success is pretty sustainable. AEW has more star power, but their wrestling is just as good. And that's going to lead to a lot of sustainability in terms of financials, although they're, they, they don't depend on this themselves, and that is a bad thing, um, because it doesn't allow you to grow. And I always said that the best thing for NXT was to, to be bought out of the WWE, to not be a part of the WWE. I've always, I've always said, why doesn't Triple H just buy it? And that would be the best thing, honestly. Having him book the company, but the company being out of not being a part of WWE, but probably knowing his relationship with Vince, how much he values him as a person, and and yeah, his position and his position in the industry, and his history as a promoter. I'm not sure he'll have the guts to do that. Or doesn't want to uh, ruin his relationship, his friendship, or whatever. Look, I've always said that NXT, NXT does that; it will. It will be able to at least it will be responsible for its own actions. And that's when it will be seen if they really are working as well as we as it seems from the from the outside right now. While they are uh, power of WWE, they might not have the star power of AEW, but their wrestling is pretty good, which speaks volumes of the booking and the format of the show is pretty good. 
The fact that it prioritizes wrestling is pretty good and that makes for a pretty sustainable show pretty much whether you're within WWE or out of it. That was, that was about that for this week. Uh, I said it was gonna be uh, I said I, it was gonna be short still 20 minutes. And before I forget uh, the leaderboard currently NXT uh, is first with 8 uh, with an average of 8 points per event Dynamite 7.75 second Impact 7.25 Raw with 2 sixes and Raw uh, Smackdown with 2 sixes and Raw with 2 fours that's it for this week in wrestling in the shop tonight show we talk about wide receiver evaluation not as much as um, probably film stuff uh, if any of you wanted to hear me talk about breaking down film. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't prioritize that. Hold on a minute. I don't prioritize that. You gotta be honest. Um, it's it's all stats for me. It's all stats, statistics. It that that's what shows the the truth. But if you are, are if you're looking at all the statistics, and don't know which to prioritize, and pretty much. This guy's first in this. Let's get him, or we he'll be a good fit. Um, then you're doing things wrong, and this is what I, business people, the, the book Moneyball, and everybody else in that um, uh, that field calls market inefficiency. And as with every, as with everything in sports. Um, the NFL market, well, both when it comes to draft um, to drafting players and to um, when it comes to, to drafting players and to know to knowing who you who your team needs and get on the market both have been wildly um, wildly on the badly, badly played out by GMs and by scouts. But some are playing it well, but it's no, it's normal for this to be, uh, to be that way. So to, to, to be inefficient, it's just, uh, it's just waiting for somebody to, to figure that out, and he'll, he'll probably be the king of the game for, for the next years, for next years to come, by knowing what his. Uh, Enemies uh, value and what they value uh, wrong, and you basically get great players at a discount. Same goes for the drafts. Get great players. I gotta give the example here: the Jets with Denzel Mims. Get probably first round type of receiver. Uh, got him. Uh, they got him at fifty seven. That was a pick that. They didn't even have uh, originally. They traded it with Seahawks to get that pick. They traded their initial pick, and they moved back and still got Mims. They got another pick, which they drafted uh, Jabari Zuniga. I'm not sure Joe Douglas is a guy that exactly plays it out that way. Although it all make it makes sense that it might make sense that. Everything that I prioritize, which is considerably follows uh, one certain logic, it doesn't follow one pattern because following a pattern uh, 
he's wrong as well, but things like prioritizing that the players who he signed, he drafted, prioritize as well. Not all of them. Jabari Zuniga, for example, isn't a spectacular pass rusher, he just doesn't get spectacular production. Um, but yeah, overall, overall, uh, that's why I, I think they had a tremendous offseason. Uh, so, what do general managers value the most that they shouldn't be valuing? First off, you know, this is something that's considerably, um, that's considerably similar to, to, to Moneyball, although it's not as egregious as the MLB prior to the early 2000s, late 90s. But, yes, some people within the industry, that's mostly because the influence of the media, which is the absolute opposite of a rationally, rationally thinking person, they are exactly the opposite. Um, and if a general manager or a, a front office eventually makes the, makes the move to listen to people, to members of the media, which is an absolute mistake, I can, I can argue that nobody should be listening to them unless, uh, apart from when they're reporting something, reporting news, something like news, for example, a trade or a sign-in, I would not listen most of them. Um, but apart from them valuing names, which is the worst thing to happen, also apart from the valuing, for example, valuing person high, player high, because he performed well in Super Bowl or whatever, it ain't gonna work out well. These are these are like cliches. I don't want. I didn't want to talk about. I wanted to talk about what what things in depth they were getting wrong. So these are cliches. We're going to leave them aside for now. Uh, so I have made a list with things that aren't valued as much while they should be valued and things that are egregiously overvalued. And the largest in position is probably the position with the second most amount, the second most amount of statistics, different statistics. It probably has more statistics than the running back. It's kind of it's kind of similar, but the the fact that receiver is targeted, the fact that receptions and targets amount for the the the, the for different things that probably uh, makes the receiving position uh, have more. Uh, different things to look at. So, three things, in my opinion, are egregiously, egregiously, egregiously uh, gotten wrong by three people within the NFL. And that, you can see that both during the draft, even before the draft, um, and in free agency, when, when they search for receivers. Um, and not sometimes, okay, sometimes it's because they don't need that kind of player, sometimes it's because it's just a player that they, that, um, they got will wind up not being efficient. So these are two different things again, and I'll explain why. Okay, the first thing, probably the, the worst thing that you can base your. Um, your opinion of a receiver by 
is the total amount of yards per season. Um, it's basically based off on two things, two different, entirely different things. It's based off on receptions and yards per reception. That's basically what uh, dictates the total number of yards. And on the other hand, the amount of receptions in the NFL, where you can you have 16 games, if that receiver is a starter, you can have a lot of receptions, and you're targeted a lot. This is not, and if you're targeted a lot, and your percentage of catch, a catch percentage is 50%, for example, this ain't good, because you're taking the, the, a huge majority of the workload, and you're paying off just half of the time, which compared to the other, to other receivers for the league, in our systems, uh, pass assistance to the passing game in the league. It's not good. It's you're 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 counted on too much, and that is taking away from people to actually be efficient with smaller workloads. So you know you you decrease the workload, and that guy gets uh, efficient. Um, if you if you give him a lot of workload. It's not always it's not always said and guaranteed that he will be efficient, and if he indeed catches just 50% of his balls and he's targeted a lot, um, the, the fact that he has a lot of yards is actually a bad thing because those lot of yards they amount for too much of the whole yardage, and that yardage will not will not be enough. Um, on the other hand, the other component that forms a total amount of yards is the yards per reception. Uh, the yards per reception, it's a, a bad myth that I hate, that the yards per reception actually show how good a receiver is. It, they don't, in no way do they. Um, I'm not going to give you an example, I'm going to just, just get found him, find him. Um, Okay, uh, found him. Come on. That's right. Um, okay, it does not amount. It does not show how good a receiver is. It shows how a receiver is utilized. And in fact, it's completely unconnected to how efficient he is, what his workload is. It just shows that how how long the passes he caught were. This means that it will show the it will show whether he's good he's used not even good whether he's used in the short game in the intermediate game or he's a long threat. If he has like 18 or that um, uh, 18 to 20 yards for reception for for example, it, the only thing it shows that he's a long threat that he's Stephen Diggs or Brashad Perriman, but those two guys are, it's pretty avid that the one is a lot better than the other. And they still have, it, it, their yard, yardage per, perception is still in that, uh, in that um, you know, range. Um, for example, Michael Thomas, he had a, the, the, one of the best uh, seasons by a wide receiver ever. He had 149 receptions. Um, 
get a catch percentage of 80.5, which is just staggering for a guy targeted 185 times. Uh, as I said, um, this is uh, the 149 catches are a new NFL record. And yeah, he, he led the league, that is obvious. Um, and if you count it, if you, if you really care about it, um, 17 over over 1700 um, total yards which again he led the league, he led the league. Um, and you know what his yards per reception value was because it was pretty uh, obvious that he was a guy who wasn't a long threat he was rather used pretty much any kind of situation because he's their best receiver and second best was Jaquan Smith or something like that, and they they, they don't give him the uh, they, they don't give him any kind of credible workload, which means that Michael Thomas is basically an all-around type of receiver. You know what his, what his number yards per reception was? 11.6. In his career best was 12.4 in 2016. Uh, no, not best. His career high. Because I said that this is, uh, in a way, this show good or bad. Um, so, so, so that's pretty much it. Um, the only thing it shows that he's utilized because uh, Drew Brees and uh, the, the Saints don't, at least Michael Thomas, they, they want to use, they want utilize the long game. They utilize it very rarely, only in a way that could be unpredictable and therefore efficient, and that's when they use those number two, three, four receivers. For everything else, short, intermediate, uh, and specifically short slash long, they choose Michael Thomas. He has 11.6 yardage per reception. He's the best. He had 149 receptions. He had that historical season. The other, the other thing that is a myth is a myth uh, that it matters, but but the fact that it doesn't matter will only show in receivers who are kind of lower in the hierarchy, but that do not have a successful uh, career or at least were inconsistent. Mostly about the inconsistency here. It's, it's yards per uh, per game. It's the same thing. Um, it, it it might be a result of the other things like receptions, targets, catch percentage, um, but it will also be result from um, yards per reception, and you know two guys who are in the same system have the same number of receptions for a game, the one is a, lo a long threat, the other is in the intermediate game, they have the same number of receptions, the one is just used for long passes, that's why he'll have 100 yards, the other will have 80 yards, but it doesn't, no way will it uh, show who played better. In fact, if the long threat had 16 targets, caught uh, 8, 400 yards, because he's a long threat, the other had 10 targets, caught
top eight graveyards, the intermediate guy had a better game. That is without any kind of um, without any kind of um, hes hesitation by me for saying it. So it will it, it is something that not good for evaluating anybody. Jasper Jasper game as is uh, Jasper reception as I said shows only how he's utilized total yards. Show uh, combining combining those two things it shows nothing pretty much. When you compare if you compare guys like that, especially if you're looking for uh, for cheap guys who weren't as used previously, total yards. You will not be getting anybody on a discount. I, I, that's what I, I assure you. You only have to pay expensive money, and you only have to play the game the long way, the unclever way. You have a lot of costs, increasing costs, and your salary cap will be getting shittier. Your salary cap situation will be getting shittier. Let me tell you that. What you should be valuing games played. To a low extent, so significantly low extent, because for some extent it shows um, it shows uh, how healthy he was. But what really matters more than the games is his workload, the number of receptions, um, and the number of targets. But mostly the number of reception because it gives credibility to um, to his yards per reception number. Pretty much a guy with 12.4 receptions who has 50 catches and a guy who has 100 catches with 12.4. Um, okay, I guess they'll probably have higher total yard total yards per uh, total season yards, but it's a lot uh, clearer and a lot easier to look at it from the way that uh, the one has been more consistent for more for bigger for a bigger majority of the time therefore he must be more consistent he's more proven and the catch percentage shows that even to a bigger extent uh, even to a better extent than than the receptions it shows that he's he's good within the system he's efficient within the system He's been good in the way he's been used. And if you're looking for a guy, especially in the short game, and he been, he's been good in the short game, and he's been efficient in the short game, you'll basically plug him in in the same type of situation. So he's almost guaranteed to have the same kind of success. And um, going back to the workload, um, I'm saying this because it gives credibility not because there is a good and a bad yards per reception number. There isn't, or at least uh, as long as it's over 10, there isn't. But um, but um, a guy who plays as a long threat, he can be efficient. Because uh, although they tend to not be, because you know that's long game, you guarantee less success on the long game than in the intermediate game. But um, he can be efficient, 
if he has a lot of receptions, therefore he's done that more often, and if he has a high catch percentage, he has been efficient, he's caught he's been targeted that many times and he's caught them he's caught it he's not caused uh he's not caused his team opportunities let's say let's say that way opportunities to to give the ball to other receivers who might be catching it more often um, so he can be efficient if he has 50 receptions out of 101 targets then he will not have credibility for that 18 yards per reception hour. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what establishes his success. The yards per reception doesn't. But if you're looking for a long threat, at the same time, it gives him credibility to uh, to the fact that he's a long threat. Uh, and, you know, the efficiencies are probably... Probably it's, it's, it's about the risk. It's probably how risk he is. So let's get, I don't know how into it, okay, uh, let's get to quickly to a couple of examples, let's set it up here, um, let's see, targets, targets will be over 100, the, um, come on, yeah. The catch percentage will be over 50. The first perception will be over 10. The catch percentage will be, um, it will be sorted by. Yes. For wide receivers, we're on the Pro Football Reference uh, Play Index page. So, I quickly wanted to show you why, why this is the right way by sorting all the receivers um, by, the, by those three different aspects. We start off with yards per reception. It, it, the only thing it shows you is uh, is how he's used pretty much. That's the only thing it's going to show you. Kenny Galladay, Mike Kevin, no, 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 no. I think he's gonna show you. Uh, it's you, know, you have called Ken Galladay, Mike Evans, Michael Gallup, Devante Parker, DK Metcalf. They lead, they lead the league by um, by yards per reception, and the, the, perhaps they are their successes perhaps the similar because um, they have a similar catch percentage. They are similarly. Efficient or say inefficient because it's about 56 for all of them. But then you have to then get to Chris Godwin. He says a 15.5 yards per reception. He has 71 catch percentage. You can see that he had pretty different season comparing it to those guys. So the only thing that yards per reception shows is um, how he's used what kind of task he's given within the system. Receptions is how, how as I said, credibility and reliability. If he has caught a lot of passes, he's pretty much a guy who whose number whose numbers are more credible. He's done that more often. 
he's been, as I said, efficient. More than the guy who had a season with uh, 50 receptions and um, and 18 yards per reception. You cannot trust that kind of a guy. He's saying if if he if he had if he's had a lot of seasons, he's had a similar yards per reception number, for example, 11, 12, 13, something like that. And he's had less than 50 receptions in each of those years. Let's say it's four years. His his price should not be higher. Should not be any kind of high, but it should not be higher than a guy who's had over 80 receptions with the same kind of utilization in those years. And catch percentage again, it's efficiency. It's the direct efficiency, the how how much he's not costing his team opportunity because if he's catching just 50% of the time. Um, if he's catching just 50% of the time, those are, in, and he's, target, he's targeted a lot, those are, this is workload that can go to another receiver who is more efficient than you have, more ca more catches, and I guess when I look at it from game perspective, you move the ball better, you have a better AR raid, you have a better passing game group, and as I said, you're going to move the ball better. Big example of a guy who didn't have a good season because he was efficient. Curtis Samuel from uh, the Carolina Panthers. He caught just 54 balls from 105 targets, which is 51%. You can say that from catch percent, he did not have a good season. It's only, and uh, to, to sum it up, I, not to sum it up, but to finish, I would say that under 60 catch percentage, under 65 even, it's only, um, I say, it's only acceptable if um, this particular guy is a long threat. Otherwise, if you're using him in the intermediate game, because you, you consider that when you're using him in the intermediate game, you're going to use him more often than when you're using him uh, down the field. So then again, he's less efficient. He, he's going to uh, eat a workload for not catching passes, and his production will be zero for most of the time. Not, not, not literally, but you, you know, you understand what I'm trying to say. So there it is. This is pretty much my approach on how inefficient the, the NFL evaluation on, on wide receivers is. Um, and it's, I think it was pretty uh, fitting to do that because, as I said, this is the, the, the position that provides, provides the most uh, statistics. So this is really the place where there is room for not uh, for undervaluing and overvaluing certain components. So there it is. This is all for today, I guess. So uh, until next week. Until next week. You're listening to Last Man Standing podcast presented by Tedor Tedogating Ten Off. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, and whatever platform you're listening to.